Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. It is great to be back. And, man, I am really excited to have Jeffrey Sove on the show today. He worked as an archivist at St. Olaf College for 20 years, and he is an award-winning author and historian and has written eight books about Minnesota history, including... Murder at Minnesota Point, which he is here to talk about today. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it so much. Well, thank you, Eric, for the invitation to appear on Most Notorious. Thank you. Thanks. So where did you you first hear about this story, and how did this book come about? Right. Well, good question. You know, I can pinpoint it actually to the day um, as I was also the archivist for the Norwegian American Historical Association, NAHA, it's um, at St. Olaf College, and it was physically across the hallway from my office in the college ar- archives. And I was helping a patron who was researching their family history from Duluth, and we were going through boxes of papers, and, and there was this one broad sheet of um, clippings and whatnot, and I pulled it out and started looking on the side, and there was this clipping that sort of just caught my eye and thought, you know, when I'm done helping this individual, I'm going to just look into it. Now, the clipping was uh, is all a mystery. That's what it was titled. It was from the Duluth News Tribune back in August 23rd, 1894, and it was very brief. All it said was, there's nothing but mystery surrounding the body of the woman found at Oatka Beach yesterday afternoon. The chief of police and the city detective said last night they were unable to find any clue that would tend to unravel the mystery. There's no doubt in the minds of the authorities that the woman, whoever she may be, was murdered. Well, after the patron left and I thought, you know, I'm going to spend my lunchtime and I'll, I'll figure this out. Now, Oatka Beach... Uh, at the time in 1894, was on um, Minnesota Point, more affectionately known as um, Park Point now in Duluth. 
Uh, that's that seven-mile sand spit right after the lift bridge. And uh, that's actually the longest um, sand spit in uh, fresh water in the world. <laughs> so it has that distinction. It was on the inside on the St. Louis Bay side, this beach, and it was a popular tourist spot. So here there's this woman. She's found on the beach, and uh, no one knows who she is. And so I'm on my lunch break, and I'm I'm just tinkering around. I can't seem to figure out who she was. And I thought, well, I'll print this out. So it was on um, November 12th, 2012, that I printed this out and thought, well, I'll come back to it. And the story started, you know, over the holidays. I just, whenever I had a free moment, I'd start looking up more. Unfortunately for this victim that uh, was found murdered, uh, they brought her into the city morgue in Duluth. And they displayed her after embalming her for almost a week and a half she was displayed. And everyone was encouraged in Duluth to come in and see if they could identify her. Now, can you imagine this? You you have sort of a, a dank room. Uh, there's ice blocks that were harvested from Lake Superior at the end of winter, uh, covered in sawdust. you got kerosene lamps. And you have this, the remains of an individual spread out on a, on a slab, and literally they said over a thousand people streamed through the morgue, and you know, they're all whispering, and who's that? Who could it be? And no one could identify her. And so they buried her in a pauper's graveyard up in Duluth. Well, I was kind of fascinated. I thought, you know, I've been kind of poking around in this for a couple of weeks, as long as she's been uh, on display, and thought, well, surely I can figure this out. And as the clipping said, you know, uh, they were going to unravel the clues. Well, you know, Eric, I think I started becoming a little unraveled because I kept digging more into it. I I wanted to know as much as I could, but I still had my job to do. So literally every day at lunch, I would print out a few more clippings. And after several months, we figured out that this victim was named Lena Olson. So was this a pretty popular beach? Was her body found soon after her murder? The Oaxaca Beach Resort was a very popular place. Um, people would take ferries from uh, the Duluth uh, Lake Superior Port area, and they would just go over for the day. It was a big tourist spot. Even today, if you go down to uh, Park Point, uh, most people go, uh, the resort side really is on the, the dunes on the other side, on the Lake Superior side. And you'll find hundreds of people there daily. But back in the 1890s, they would have been on the bay side. And it would be a daily event. You'd go have picnics and whatever. But this body was found early in the morning on uh, August 21st, 1894. There was, you know, maybe I would say 20, 30 houses on the a park point at that point. And uh, one young family, you know, it was kind of going to be a cool morning. So the mother said to her 10-year-old son, why don't you go down the shoreline and find some driftwood? And so here's this boy just going along. He'd kind of gone past where, you know, the, the resort, the partiers would have been. And then he saw this sort of pile of brush and sticking out of the brush was this this hand, you know, with uh, <laughs> rigor mortis set in, hands sticking out of the brush with a bracelet with bangles dangling from it, a silver bracelet. Can you imagine the horror of this, <laughs> seeing this? And 
This little boy ran home and told his mother, and then she uh, summoned the police. And so thus began this huge investigation because the police show up, and they came by a tug, the tug Pathfinder, and they removed the body and brought it to the morgue. From that point, the main person involved in trying to figure out who murdered this woman was the senior Duluth detective, Bob Benson. He was in his mid-30s. And, uh, of course, they only had two detectives on staff, so it wasn't a big force. But over the next two and a half years, there were over 20 suspects. And so Benson and his colleague uh, would travel all over the United States trying to figure out, was this the murderer? Oh, no, that couldn't be the right person. Is this the murderer? And um, so it got convoluted for me as a writer to dig in and figure out. I'd go down these rabbit holes of like, well, is this the murder? And um, as it turned out, it would be a false lead. And and then the murder itself, this is kind of interesting how, as a reader, you were thinking, okay, well, we know Lena Olson. Uh, she was identified by her younger sister, Lizzie. And Lizzie had told Bob Benson, you know, she was hanging around a guy named, at the time he told everyone, his name was Albert Austin. And this Albert Austin pretended he was a, a well-to-do Englishman who had migrated to California. And he was sort of a smooth-talking fellow. But um, the reality was he was just a crook and a shyster. <laughs> and, yeah. But he had somehow gotten Lena to fall in love with him. And Lena, you know, she was 32. And uh, her parents said immigrated from Norway in uh, 1861, and she was born in 1862. And like a lot of uh, immigrant families, you know, you go no more than eighth grade education. As for Lena, uh, when she was only five, her mother passed away. Her father quickly remarried. And by the time she was 12, 13, she was uh, done with school, working as a domestic servant, and then she made her way up to the Twin Cities. And, you know, she saved her money. She kept putting money away as a domestic. You might earn about a dollar a day. But she had saved up about $400. So she had a little nest egg. And then all of a sudden, here comes this Albert Austin, who's kind of enticing her. And, you know, she's 32 and unmarried in 1894. She's going to take her chances on this guy. Right. Now, you said she was... Um encased in debris. Was it automatically assumed that she was murdered? I mean, she could have drowned, right, and washed ashore? Right. So after they removed the brush, um, actually one of the, the county coroner came along as well. So he was there at the scene. Uh, her head was encased in uh, her, her silk wrappings. And so she was either strangled to death or bludgeoned to death. They found a large uh, oak stick within 15 feet and had blood on it. And uh, she had bruises around her neck. And when they removed this sort of silk cape around her head, then blood uh, was kind of, well, I would say there was a large gash in the back of her head. So it was definitely signs that she had been murdered. There were some men of questionable character, though, right, in, in Duluth during this time who frequented its many saloons, brothels. And I'm not trying to say that the the lumberjacks, for, for instance, 
who were roaming around town spending their pay were looking for trouble necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure a few were, but but there there was some element of danger for a young single woman in the city. Right. You know, so you want to think about Duluth in the 1890s, and it was a large port town. They sort of likened it to uh, the, they call it the San Francisco of the Great Lakes. There was great wealth flowing through the port. You had lumber and mineral ores from Minnesota's Northland flowing through. The town in the 1884, just imagine 10 years earlier, only had 4,000 people. By 1894, it's approaching 45,000 people. So it was just a burgeoning community. There was already six, seven-story high uh, buildings downtown Duluth, um, magnificent mansions built by the wealthiest industrialists of the area. So there was great wealth. But as you said, with prosperity, you also get the other side. (laughs) There were over 50 brothels and unlicensed liquor establishments down on the wharves. Uh, Park Point, of course, exists as we know it now, right after Canal Bridge. And But back then there wasn't a bridge, of course. You had to take a ferry to get across the canal. But that whole area, as we know, is Canal Park. That was a rough territory. And there was many incidents of, you know, crime being committed but where they went, uh, when I mentioned Oaka Beach, yeah, you by and large, you could. there was two ways of getting there. You could take a ferry, and they had day trips. So, you know, you'd, you'd take like the 10 a.m. ferry, and you'd spend the day at the beach, and you'd come home by 10 at night. Or you could take the ferry across the canal. And they had a horse-drawn streetcar that, you know, had a track right down the middle of Minnesota Point. And that was a popular way of going. And because Minnesota, the North Shores, it's really like an air-conditioned facility, isn't it? You know, got the Great Lake and it's always cool. And so a lot of people like to camp on Minnesota Point. Back then there was numerous uh, camps where young men would come and pitch their tent for several weeks. And they all had, you know, funny names and you would just pull up on the horse-drawn wagon, and basically, and they would, you know, stop and drop you off. So it was, the the point itself was, it was a busy place, but at the sort of tip where all this murder took place, there was a pavilion there, uh, sort of a dance hall, and there was, you know, kind of some activity, you know, there was drinking going on, and sometimes there was assaults, and so... You wouldn't want to be out there at that, you know, after 10 o'clock at night unless there was a dance. So for Lena to be found early in the morning, what was she doing there late at night? And uh, what we found out was that this Austin had, uh, without really telling anyone, uh, they secretly married. And then uh, they, they went up to Duluth. So no one knew she was up there with him. And then... Uh, After their first wedding night, he took her down. We don't know how. He did take uh, the ferry across the canal. He was on the horse-drawn trolley, the streetcar, and other people did see him. They all witnessed one thing in common. They all remember her bracelet. It was a very distinctive bracelet with all these bangles on it. And um, by finding there the next morning, he somehow must have taken her. You know, there wasn't a dance that night. So it was very quiet at the end of the tram, and he probably just walked her along the beach and then did her in. 
Yeah. So in the time after she's found, but before she's identified, a, a sketch is made of her. And it's printed in papers, and multiple people come forward claiming that they, they recognize her as, as the person they saw days before her death, including those people you mentioned who saw her on this trolley. W- would you talk a bit more about that? How were Lena and her new husband interacting with each other? How was he treating her? Right. So, you know, this is a small horse-drawn trolley. I don't think it would seat more than a dozen people at the most. What what the other passengers commented, and I think there was at least three or four that said, yeah, I saw them. It was about seven o'clock and they were on this streetcar with us, but it was how he acted. He he was reading a newspaper and Lena kept pointing out, oh, look at that beautiful thing. Oh, were we up on that hill up there? And, and he seemed almost irritated with her and and they thought it, the passengers thought it seemed strange. She was well-dressed. She had on a, like I said, a brown satin uh, outfit and new shoes. And he was in a nice suit. But he didn't really seem to have the time of day for her. And then she wanted the window opened a little bit and he wanted it closed. And I think that the people basically were surmising that, well, they were probably newly married. But why would he treat his, his bride this way? As I said, people were coming, getting on and off the streetcar to go to these uh, overnight, you know, tenting communities. And so, you know, they, no one stayed with them to the end of the, the, of the rail line at the end of uh, Minnesota Point. But they definitely noticed there was something amiss about them. But one thing they noticed distinctively, it's funny what people notice, they all noticed the bracelet on her. It, because it was silver with bangles, they looked at it and thought that maybe she had a little bit of money. Um, she was wearing a new hat. It was a black silk hat with two silk red roses on it. So very distinctive. But there was a shoe salesman on this streetcar. And what would a shoe salesman look at her? <laughs> He'd look at the shoes. And so he yeah. was admiring what shoes they were wearing. Or, you know, he thought that. Uh, Austin's shoes were a little scuffed up, but um, that's what he took a notice of. But they got pretty good descriptions of the two of them. And, and Lena was remarkable for her, her bracelet alone, which became the central evidence, you know, as she's displayed, that's, that's put on display. And so people, you, know, you have to imagine, she was left out. I mean, I think she was murdered within 12 hours of when the young boy discovered her. So she hadn't uh, deteriorated too much, but uh, at least the personal artifacts she had on were um, distinguishable, and that that helped identify her. Uh, you mentioned his shoes were scuffed up, but but she was well dressed and, and very put together. Right, and they seemed like an odd pair. Right, you know, it wasn't uncommon when people would you know after that they were going to go on their honeymoon or whatever they would especially for a woman to have, you know, all new things, a new a trousseau of clothing, you know, a trunk full of nice niceties that she would bring along. So that's why I think they thought that she was newly married. You know, she, all her things seemed to be brand new or recently purchased. Uh, this guy, yeah, not so sure. She, uh, she certainly shined where he didn't. Right, right. What did he, he look like? 
was he considered uh, han- handsome? You know, you know it's, so she was about 32, and everyone agreed that he was probably in his mid to late 40s, maybe around six feet tall. So at that time, that would have been considered uh, you know, above average in height, uh, more slender than not, balding a little bit. He had a, a large black mustache and uh, sideburns a little bit. So And usually men at that time would wear a hat. He did have a hat on. So by and large, he didn't look too different from what a lot of men were sporting for uh, side whiskers or a mustache. But um, I guess what was noticeable was he just didn't seem to be interested in his bride. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Once police get his description, he gets his own sketch. Right. And this sketch goes out like a wanted poster across the country and people everywhere are are looking for him eager to collect the reward. Right. Yeah. That was a, you know, we have to think about how, how detectives did their job back then. And it was, you know, just in the infancy of, you know, police work, they, they drew up a sketch and they put out a circular, as you mentioned, and went to all, you know, sheriff departments around the United States and a description of this fella. And, but that wasn't, the, you know, the best way of finding him. There wasn't uh, ways of telegraphing everyone and saying, hey, here's a picture of him. What I found interesting is that they relied heavily upon what they call rogues galleries. It is a collection of photographs of known criminals. And so Lena's younger sister, Lizzie, as I mentioned, she went with Detective Benson down to Chicago to look at this massive rogues gallery of like 100,000 photographs. And they just spent day after day just sifting through them to see if she could find the one guy that looked, you know, like the one she remembered dating her sister. But that's basically what they were relying upon. If you found a, a photograph in the rogues gallery, there would be a corresponding index card that would say this person was a pickpocket or a a burglar, you know, maybe uh, someone who had assaulted another. But that's basically all they had to go on. And as for Austin, as we soon learn, you could create an alias and leave the state, create an, a new fictitious name, and bam, you're on, you're on easy street. No one's going to know you. You have a new name. And interestingly, what I learned is that police didn't really work together. Now, in Duluth, the, the county was so, they couldn't believe, here's Lena Olson, the first woman that was unidentified, murdered in the Duluth city limits. And they were just like, oh, my, we got to offer a reward. So they offered $250, which was quite a bit for the capture of the murderer. The state of Minnesota, the governor decreed he was going to offer 250 So there was a $500 reward, which was pretty sizable in its day. You would think after they determined that Lena Olson had been a domestic servant from Minneapolis and her sister Lizzie lived in Minneapolis, that Detective Benson, Benson, excuse me, as I mentioned from Duluth, would work closely with the Minneapolis detectives. That wasn't the case. If you were capable of finding the murderer, you got to keep the reward money. So Benson wasn't going to share his reward money with the Minneapolis police and vice versa. So they weren't helping each other. And that's why Benson kept going on one wild goose chase after another, hunting down suspects. He really wanted the money, I think. 
And he was getting a lot of press. Everyone was covering this story. The Lena Olson murder story was, and it made nationwide papers. It was circulated everywhere. And the Duluth newspapers kept carrying banners on, you know, the front page, the latest in the Lena Olson murder. So it was a, it was on the tips of everyone's tongue for quite a while. But I was surprised at the sort of immature ways they approached trying to capture this murder and how, in the end, it was resolved so quickly. A word from our sponsors back in a moment. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. Bob Benson had a bit of a, a checkered past, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, a, a tarnished reputation. So for the listeners, yes, Bob Benson. Now, back then, if you were going to be a police officer, it wasn't like you were trained at an academy or whatever. You were, if you were hired to be a patrolman and made your way up the ladder to be a detective, most likely you were able to handle yourself on a street with a bunch of tough thugs down on the wharves or whatever. They said Benson had actually come from a someone who characterized him from the cranberry swamps of Michigan <laughs> made his way to Duluth and um, was a patrolman in the mid 1880s and made detective. There was a newspaper editor at the time that didn't care for Benson and said that uh, the detective couldn't even track down a load of hay. Um, <laughs> I don't think he had a particularly great record for uh, solving crimes, but he was good. They said he was good at um, working with people and getting to the bottom of things. He was tenacious. They said he could swear like a, a fishwife, as they used to say. He could get in fisticuffs with anyone. So if that needed, he. I know early on when he was a patrolman, he was stabbed in the side. Um, but man, you know, he managed to bring in the the fella that had assaulted him. So Bob Benson was one of those individuals that. Because of his uh, status as a police officer, he also used it to his advantage. He was accused of more than once of graft, uh, corruption. And his downfall was in the end that Bob Benson did not get along with a man running for mayor. And once that man was elected mayor, Henry Trulson, Trulson basically fired the entire uh, senior uh, police staff, the chief and the, the two detectives and cleaned house, and then Trulson appointed his nephew to be the next chief of police. And one of the, the, the events that Benson participated in that, that dogged him through his life 
um, he, he had shot and killed a, a young man. Right. right. A good. Yeah. So backing up a little in history here. So I mentioned Benson becomes a detective in 1885. By the late 1880s, there's a huge uh, labor strike in Duluth, and it got really ugly. Um, in fact, there was armed people firing and the police were firing back. And uh, Benson fired back and he, he, he did kill a, a young man. Some thought it was in self-defense, others did not, but they held that against him. The police force were all awarded medals for their bravery and how they stopped this labor war. But that's something that dogs you through your career. People didn't forget. And because Duluth was made up of various communities, as I said, there's the Park Point communities and there's there's all these pockets. Uh, he wasn't welcomed in some of them. So you had to kind of stay away from trouble. So as long as we're on the topic of the Duluth police force, uh, I have to ask you about this odd trophy case kept by the chief of police. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing in my book, Murder at Minnesota Point, is uh, every chapter or so I have a sidebar. One of the sidebars I wrote about was um, Chief Armstrong's uh, gruesome collection of relics. It was his own personal museum. And it seems rather strange, but Armstrong had been a deputy sheriff in the county and then in the spring of 1894, he was appointed police chief. And that's when he started amassing his collection. I guess he had been collecting things in the past. So take, for instance, I said there was this four-foot oak stick found with blood on it that supposedly might have bludgeoned Lena Olson to death. That was Chief Armstrong's prized possession. But within, you know, he had a case just for uh, items that uh, from suicides, so razor blades with dried blood on them and nooses people hung themselves with and revolvers that people shot themselves with. And then he also had cases with like wire used in lynching someone or, or bark from a tree where uh, someone was hung from. Uh, heinous artifacts. And one of the more interesting and odd one, there was a human skull with a uh, broken knife blade and sticking out of it. Uh, that was from a, an attempted murder. Well, I guess it was murder because they had the skull. But he had this whole display case of just items. And every once in a while, the newspaper would say, oh, see the latest relic in Chief Armstrong's gruesome collection. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Armstrong ended up, of course, he was let go, too, by uh, spring of 1896. So I don't know what became of his Museum of the Macabre. But I know if you visited the Central Station back in the day, yeah, you would you'd have a lot to look at. And he'd go <laughs> yeah. around the country in his off time picking up relics and whatever to put in there. So, yeah, kind of strange. Yeah. So Benson wasn't having much luck in Duluth. So, so if you're a criminal in, in outstate Minnesota, it, it seems logical, right, that, that you might have some ties to the more heavily populated Twin Cities. So Benson goes to Minneapolis right, to right. follow up on leads. Yeah, so, you know, this poor Lena Olson, this, um, 
So for about a week and a half, they displayed her and no one could figure out who she was. And they took postmortem photographs. And um, as I said, these uh, cut illustration drawings were circulated in newspapers. But Benson thought, as you mentioned, you know, if she wasn't from here, if no one in Duluth could figure out who she was, most likely she came from the Twin Cities. And so he went down there and he hung up pictures of her in the postmortem images, but man, she was kind of ghastly looking. But um, her younger sister, Lizzie, stepped forward and said, you know, I, I think that could be my sister. I haven't seen her around in a while, and it sort of looks like her, and the artifacts that uh, you have images of are the things that she would have worn. So uh, Lizzie joined Detective Benson and went to Duluth, and they exhumed Lizzie. I mean, excuse me, they exhumed Lena, her older sister, and then, uh, yes, Lizzie said, yeah, that's my sister, and I want the uh, remains taken down to the Twin Cities, and we'll have her reburied. Actually, and I'll talk about that story in a while, about where she was buried. I only at the time when I was researching, I only knew that she was buried in Lakewood's uh, cemetery area, but it wasn't positive. They just said it was a Swedish cemetery. So now we know that Lena's been identified. And Lizzie, as I said, mentioned, well, she was hanging around this guy named Austin. So then the circulars went out. Benson was pretty clever in doing that. And uh, that was then uh, by mid-September of 1894. And this case dragged on until the spring of 1896. Benson did go, yeah, I know he went to California and he went to Ohio and Illinois for me, trying to track it down, I had to go through a lot of various newspapers and and trying to figure out, okay, if he's not going by Albert Austin, what's he going by? And interestingly, during all of this, someone in northeast Minneapolis, this boarding house lady, contacted the police and said, there's a strange little satchel that was left here by a man who bilked her out of paying his boarding fees. And she said, why don't you come look at it? There might be some in it. She believed that this former border, border might have been Austin, the suspected murderer. And so a Minneapolis detective named John Courtney went up there to investigate. Now, this is all in the April of uh, 1896. By this time, Benson's off the case. Uh, as I mentioned, Mayor Trulson came in, uh, in Duluth. And he promptly fired Benson. So Benson had been on the case for two and a half years and had no results. Now, John Courtney goes to the boarding house, looks through the satchel, finds things inside there, clippings and, and material related to a man named James Alsop from Tacoma, Washington. And he starts thinking, I wonder if this could be the same guy. And there's some handwritten notes and letters and... Luckily, the police had done a, a hand analysis of when Lena and, now we're going to go back, when Lena married Austin, and they went to Duluth and they stayed overnight, he filled out the gist registry at the hotel. And believe it or not, what was found in the satchel handwriting, they compared it to the registrar at, at, at the hotel in Duluth, and it matched. And so all of a sudden, Courtney's got someone he can hunt down. And it's amazing to me that he says, well, if he's from 
the Tacoma area, I'm going to go out there. And within three weeks, Courtney captures the murderer, Austin, whose real name is James Alsop. Yeah. So Lizzie is very important in solving this case. She had seen the interactions close up between her sister, Lena, and Albert Austin. What conclusions did she draw after witnessing their relationship? Right. So Lizzie herself was a domestic servant, and typically on her days off, um, she'd get together with her sister and play cards, and this Albert Austin would come over and play as well. She didn't like him. In fact, no one that was at these card parties had much to say about him. They basically thought he was a a card sneak, you know, maybe he was a cheater. And they warned Lena, you know, even the boarding house where they stayed at, uh, don't don't go out with him, stay away from this guy. Lizzie and her sister Lena, I don't think they were particularly close. Uh, There were some notes to say that uh, they weren't the friendliest of sisters, but they were sisters. Lizzie did all she could to find Austin. You know, she would, she got on the train and went to Chicago. She tried going through all those photographs. She was pitching in at every minute. But Benson in particular didn't seem to really care for her either. Uh, Lizzie didn't really ingratiate herself too much. And Benson later down the road said, you know, after we exhumed Lena from the pauper's grave in Duluth, and then she was reburied in, in the cities. Lizzie was a little put out that her sister was put in a pine box, and she wanted a, a better coffin. So Benson said he spent $90, which was quite a sizable amount, to pay for the new funeral and expenses of an, a decent coffin. And he said, Lizzie never reimbursed me. I just got the the feeling that Lizzie would do what she could to find the murder, but in the end, Lizzie... She never married, and she faded away. She was committed to the state institution at Rochester. So she didn't have a happy ending to her own life. But you look at it, and, well, her help was needed. Uh, and as for Austin, yeah, he he put on airs as he was a well-to-do Englishman, but I think people could see through it. He really wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as police learn more about Austin, and his real identity becomes clearer, they begin to fully understand the extent of his guile. But it is interesting that he picks Lena Olson as his target. She's a domestic servant and not the typical uh, rich pickings. One might expect someone of this level of grift to prey upon. That's, you know, it's a good point you bring up. And it's, it's something that, you know, to recognize. My own great-grandmother was a domestic servant who arrived from Sweden in 1888. And, you know, this is the role she did in the Twin Cities. And so there's some sort of relationship I see there and understanding. And domestic servants, you know, you would work, you'd work six days a week, and then you might get a half day off. You make a dollar a day. You had to be up by 6 a.m., you know, tending the fires, getting breakfast ready, getting the children ready, doing the wash, polishing the silver, you name it. And then after supper, after you put everything away, then maybe you can get ready to have your own time. So your days were 
short for yourself. And they were on the low rung of the ladder. So socially, you were at the pretty much the bottom. And as an immigrant, you know, double so. So if something happened to an immigrant domestic servant who's killed, it's not going to get a lot of press. Um, this particular story, what fascinated me in one way I tried to write it was to emphasize that she did count. She did have merit. Everyone uh, has a legacy that should be noted. I didn't want this book to be about violence towards women and that, and I would somehow turn Austin, who's now Alsop, into some sort of, you know, anti-hero. He gets his comeuppance in the end. For myself, I really wanted Lena to shine, so I spent a lot of time researching who she was, where her family came from. And then conversely, I spent quite a bit of time digging into who this Alsop was. Yes, it's true he was technically English. His parents uh, immigrated from England in 1846, and then uh, he was only two years old and uh, made his way to believe it or not, a little village in New York called Butternuts. And so I contacted the little historical society in that village, and they were thrilled when I contacted them. Oh, no one's asked about him. He must be a murderer. <laughs> I said, well, how do you know this? And they go, oh, we believe it. They had a little bit of information, but it had to do with his first wife. So that, as I started digging into it, Al Sop, after he left Butternuts as a young man, he went to Kansas, and he became the deputy county marshal. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, this guy's a real, he knows the law, he knows the way around it. And I contacted Trago County in Kansas, and, and they had all these clippings from the early 1880s on him. And they said, well, then he went to Tacoma. And then I contacted the Tacoma Historical Society. And by this time, Al Sop is making pretty good money. He was accused of some kind of shady dealings in Kansas, maybe hence why he quickly went to Tacoma. But now he's in Tacoma and he's he's living on the high end. He's got a, a mansion on a hill and he owns a part of a railroad and he's doing rather well. So my book kind of balances who Lena was and who the murderer was and really what kind of becomes of both of them even though we know Lena was murdered early on, like I said, in the end, she gets, uh, she gets back, you know, Alsop gets his just desserts. Yeah. His uh, wife in Tacoma suffers from a, a carriage accident. Yeah. Allegedly accident. It, it's, it's, it's blamed on a runaway horse. Right. Yeah. Which I didn't know when, you know, you first start researching this. So, most likely he was a bigamist. Most likely Alsop was a serial killer. His first wife, Mary, uh, dies in this strange carriage accident. And, you know, all these clippings I I got from the Butternuts people. Uh, when I, you know, the archivist for them, she's in her 70s and she was thrilled that I was like going to investigate this person. They had a file on them. And uh, it was the height of COVID. And I'm like, well... Obviously, I can't come out there. And she said, oh, I'll copy everything and mail it to you. And uh, Oh, that's nice. That's, that was the one that was, for me, was great because all these people were interested in helping. I was trying to write this book during 2020, and 
Uh, I couldn't get to Trago County, Kansas. I couldn't get to Tacoma. But everyone would dig through the archives and photocopy and send me things. And one little clipping would lead to another. And so I ended up with an extensive box. I think I must have about 200, 300 clippings in there. But, um, you know, it's not to write a book. It's not just one person. It takes a whole bunch of people and from many different angles. For instance, at the beginning when I was researching this book, uh, one of my colleagues who had left St. Alt became the director of the Special Collections and Archives up at uh, University of Minnesota Duluth, Amy Brown. And uh, I said, do you have any scrapbooks or anything of the police records from Duluth from the 1890s? He says, oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, they were deposited with the university. Come on up. And so I identified one. It just said police scrapbook 1890s. I said, can you pull that? And, Eric, there's nothing like it when you're researching someone. You're sitting there at a table. The entire scrapbook was devoted to the Lena Olson murder case. Oh, wow. And there were things in there like uh, image cut of her from when she was alive, uh, a portrait. That's the only place I've ever found an image of her when she was alive. And there was many other clippings. And then the police record books, it would list like how tall, how many pounds each of them weighed. And then one of them... One of the police officers listed was a Henry Threadcraft, and it said Negro next to it. And I thought, well, that's rather odd. And But he was Duluth's first African-American police officer. He was only on the force for several years, but he was on the force at the time of this murder. And yet no one in Duluth ever has brought him up. You can't find anything written about him. He's just a, a footnote in the in the city's history, but you know when I'm doing research, you you find those sort of uh, asterisks, you know, one little note that you can add that, that fleshes out the bigger story. Yeah. But for me, you know, trying to as I was digging, I can go back a little bit. So you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, it was in 2012 that I started digging into it, but. Right around maybe 2013-14, I thought I would, it, there was enough information that I should write this book. I was busy with other projects at St. Olaf, but I thought, well, you know, this is a fascinating story. It's very intricate. It's complex. But at the same time, Eric, as I was contemplating this, and I'm the kind of writer when I, you know, lie in bed before falling asleep, I, I frame it. How am I going to tell this story? How am I going to set it up? And Invariably, I'd fall asleep and have nightmares. A lot of the nightmares focused on being in the sand dunes with evil eyes looking at me and something grabbing me. And I, I was having such difficulty with this. that These were reoccurring dreams. I just couldn't shake. And um, everyone was saying, you know, this is not a healthy place for you. you. You really don't need to write this book. You need to just put it away. Um, I would go back and forth with individuals and said, but you know, it's a worth, it's a story worth telling. And then every Friday night I, I do lap swimming at the senior center. And there was a professor from Carleton. We affectionately call him professor Q. He was from China. And uh, every Friday night we'd sit in the hot tub after lap swimming. And he was a prolific writer and um he would, he would coach me and mentor me in how I should approach it. And he would say, well, you know, if, 
if you found Lena or you had a chance to talk to her, what questions would you ask her? And, you know, very thoughtful approach. And then Professor Q said, it was, I remember in the spring of 2015, well, I'll, I'll see you soon. I'm going down to Florida for spring break. We'll catch up and figure out how you're going to write that book. Well, sadly, he got caught in a riptide and drowned while he was down there. Oh, no. Oh. oh, yes, it was unbelievable because he was an excellent swimmer. But uh, after that, I just I have to put this book away. I really was unraveling. You know, my intent was to unravel the mystery, but it was having an effect upon me. Uh, many dear people are saying, just put it away. And I finally thought after that uh, episode with Professor Q, uh, that's it, I'm done. And I, I just put everything away and... I started feeling pretty healthy about it, and then, and then a few years lapsed, and then it was in the summer of 2018. I was up at Enger Tower. For those that don't know it, it's a five-story stone edifice that was built in the late 1930s, and it sits up on Skyline Parkway overlooking the harbor. And I was standing on the, you know, it's an open-air platform, and I was standing on the fifth floor, with my wife and I was pointing out, yep, right over there. That's, that's where Lena was murdered. And my wife's kind of looking at me because I don't think she really wanted me to approach this story again. But and I'm talking about this murder and this couple, I don't know who they are. They're standing next to me, um, you know, taking in the sights and they go, murder, what murder? And I said, oh no, that happened a hundred plus years ago. And then they started asking me more questions and Pretty soon I start giving a lecture on the Gilded Age and the, the transformation of Duluth into this, you know, commerce center. But, you know, as we talked about earlier, the crime that goes with it. And when I was finished, there must have been 12, 15 people standing there on the platform listening to me. And everyone's asking, where can I get the book? And I said, well, I haven't written it. <laughs> well, we got back in the car and we're driving back to the cities. My wife said, you kind of enjoyed that, didn't you? And I said, well, it felt good to revisit the story and, and tell Lena's story. And then my wife said, and oh, she was so right. She said, you're never going to be able to tell that story until you actually find Lena's grave and talk to her. And, you know, even thinking back to what Professor Q said, you know, I need to talk to her. And I said, well, better said than done. I don't know where she was buried. They just sit in a Swedish cemetery. And she said, well, maybe some new material has been digitized. Maybe there's something you can find that would say, well, Evelyn was right. I started searching and found a clipping that said that Lena was buried in the Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis. And fortunately, Lakewood has indexed everyone that's interned in the, the cemetery. Tens, I think they probably about 10,000 listings. And, uh, I found the right Lena Olson had a comment that said, you know, uh, remains removed from Duluth in 1894. And so again, here she has the distinction. She's buried yet again in a pauper's field at Lakewood Cemetery. And so we go down there one, it was in the fall of 2018. And, you know, the leaves are falling. It's a beautiful day. And Lena doesn't have a, a marker. I just know she's in, you know, this row and this section, but I, I can't find it. There's, I'm wandering around this field and I'm getting a little frustrated. And then a, a security guard pulls up and gets out and says, um, you've been wandering around for quite a while. 
That's how they've been obviously watching me. And I said, well, I'm trying to find this grape. Then he goes, well, have you used our app? <laughs> uh, I was dumbfounded. I said, app? And he said, yeah, just punch in the grave coordinates and that'll bring you to it. And sure enough, we put in our phone and it guided us right to where Lena was buried. And uh, my wife said, you know, I'm going to leave you alone and you can talk to her. And that was an incredibly cathartic moment to just be able to stand in front of the grave where Lena, who I had invested all these years into researching and having nightmares about and, and and then just have time to question, you know, why do I want to tell her story? Maybe when I originally found that clipping, that clipping found me, Eric. I'm, I'm not sure. But, you know, when I left that day from the cemetery, I never had another nightmare about that, writing the book or scenes from the book. None of that ever revisited me. And I felt like I could, I could start writing it. And so... As for Lena, you know, she was in an unmarked grave, and this is a, a nice highlight. In the back of my book, I mentioned if anyone wants to just contribute to getting a marker for Lena, I'd be much appreciated. Well, soon after the book was released uh, last fall, you know, someone from Michigan sent me $100, someone from Idaho sent me 20 one gentleman called me up and said, oh, can you meet me at Perkins in the Twin Cities? I want to talk to you about your book. And I said, well, sure. He hands over $400. Wow. Within six weeks, I raised all the money to buy her a marker. And then to top it off, uh, one of my wife's colleagues is on the board of directors at Lakewood Cemetery. And she said, the cemetery folks would love to help you, the foundation. We're not going to charge you any installation fees or ordering fees, just pay for the marker and we'll take care of the rest. So as of the other week, the marker's been installed. Lena now has a marker. <laughs> Great work. Yeah, it's that's the, the rewarding part. When you, know, you set out to write a book, you're not sure how people are going to respond, whether it's going to be critically accepted or uh, if, you're gonna, if your narrative is going to resound with people in a sense that they're going to identify with some aspect of it. But for me, it was just doing right by Lena, and I think we accomplished that. We will return momentarily. And we are back once more. By all period accounts, by all who who knew her, she was a really sweet, kind person. And those who were her friends, acquaintances, were confused by why she fell for this guy. You know, Eric, it's a sad thing that we see reoccurring in newspaper clippings every week is that how could she have gone out with that guy? And then, you know, you hear about someone's unfortunate demise. For Lena, she was a hardworking, industrious person. She didn't have an education, but, you know, she, at 32, she had saved up $400, which was quite a sum in those days, because as I mentioned, you could only earn maybe about a dollar a day, you know, working. So, and you still got to pay for your room and board. So that was a little nest egg. And this Austin was just a, he just saw her as an easy target. You know, if I just take her somewhere and knock her off, I can get her $400 from her and move on to the next 
who knows how many women he dispatched over the years. But Lena was warned, you know, this guy's no good for you. But I think she just wanted to be loved. And I think that's just human nature. Everyone should be loved and wants to have the opportunity to love another. And she just fell for the wrong guy. Right, right. And this Olsop guy, I mean, he, he started his, his adult life with, with a strong moral backbone, you know, according to what you write. There's a story about how he, he finds a valuable, and this is when he's a young man, and he goes out of his way to, to find its owner. Right, especially as a marshal. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they said he was quite a good churchgoer. And yeah, his sort of descent into hell, I think once he gets to Tacoma and He's, you know, he's in the big money crowd. He buys into a railroad. and But then he's he's running real estate scams. And I, I honestly think he got in too deep. And so he's running more fraud, this and that, to recoup his losses. And, and then people start perishing around him. It just spiraled out of control. The more I dug into him, the more despicable he became. So in the end... He's, he's captured. I brought up earlier John Courtney, the detective from Minneapolis. And Courtney says, okay, these clippings allude to that he lived in Tacoma. I'm going to go out there. And he goes over to the home of Alsop's second wife. Alsop remarried shortly after his first wife had that carriage accident. And she's like, well, I haven't seen him in a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, maybe you can go to his business office and talk to his partners and his business partner said, oh, yeah, he was just in here the other day. He's staying at this hotel, and he goes down to the train depot. to You, you could pick up your mail there. That's how mail was distributed by, you know, the rail cars that bring it in. And, then, and so he was waiting for his mail when Courtney apprehends him. It only took Courtney nine days from the time he left Minneapolis to actually apprehend Alsop, which is amazing considering that uh, for about 600 days previously, Benson had chased him down with no luck. But Courtney then was able to arrest him. And uh, sadly, uh, unwilling to face the law, Alsop takes his own life. It's quite a, a shocking end. And unfortunately, police don't get the chance to ask him a lot of questions, uh, do they? No, they don't. They don't get a, you know, they don't get a, any sort of deposition or anything really from him. And the way the reward was set up, that you had to bring him back to Minnesota. He needed to stay in trial. And so Courtney now is faced with the St. Louis County saying, well, we don't want to give you the money because, you know, it's not proven that he was the murderer. And uh, eventually they did give in. They took a vote, and I think it was three to two in favor of paying out the detective. But um, Courtney, yeah, it only took him just a couple of weeks to find the criminal, <laughs> apprehend him, and, and end the case. So as, as much as I spent in the book tracking down the murder, it didn't take Courtney long at all to just kind of quickly handle the situation. And poor Benson, he's on a train, and he opens up the newspaper and reads that, you know, Courtney uh, – it solved the case, and that would probably be a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, definitely. So 
uh, without question, one of the most notorious murderers in Minnesota history was Harry Hayward. Right. And uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes of this episode to an interview I did with Sean Francis Peters about him on, on Minnesota's Most Notorious. But, but he was the same kind of scoundrelly bum <laughs> as Elsop uh, slash Austin. Hayward leached off his parents, hung out in saloons, uh, billiard rooms, uh, was always looking for a fast buck, and he ultimately takes out an insurance policy on a friend named Kitty Ging. Uh, please, listeners, uh, forgive me if you know this. Uh, she is uh, murdered. Hayward is the mastermind. And there is a connection between Hayward and the villain in this story. Uh-huh. And then the state of Minnesota, after he was found guilty, he was hung. Yeah. And interestingly, with Hayward, and I would recommend to listeners that uh, my book and Sean Peter's book, they make a nice tandem to read together because they are interrelated. I do spend about a chapter on Hayward and his relationship to Alsop. Interesting with Hayward, I mean, his father was pretty well-to-do, and uh, he had purchased the Ozark Flats, which was sort of the the best of uh, apartment dwellings in Minneapolis. And so you got a young, young uh, man living there, this Hayward. And Harry, he's, he's good looking and uh, he's got money and uh, women are attracted to him, but he's a gambler. And, but you know who keeps showing up at the Ozark Flats is this Alsop. And they were pals. People saw him on the streets together. I think this is the one only time in at least U.S. history where two serial killers most likely hung out together. And there's some speculation that maybe Harry had his hand involved with Lena Olson's murder. Some people pegged him to be in Duluth at the time of the murder. It's possible. Uh, Harry would have people help him get rid of others just for a couple hundred dollars. So if, if Alsop said, Lena's got $400, help me get rid of her. Maybe Harry was hiding in the dunes and came down and hit her with the uh, stick. It's, it's possible. With Harry, he, you know, as I mentioned, he was hung by the statement. So for the, the murder of Kitty Ging, which he didn't actually commit in the sense he had his, his cat's paw, his henchman, Klaus Blixt, who was the uh, custodian in the building at Ozark Flats, uh, carry out the evil deed of uh, Klaus went out with Kitty in the carriage, and then he shoots her. But the court finds that Harry had essentially hypnotized or used Sven methods to get Klaus to do whatever his bidding was. So Klaus gets a lifetime sentence in prison, but they hang Harry. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're right that this comes up a lot. When you read the Star Tribune, uh, the big Twin Cities Daily, You'll see Harry's name mentioned once in a while in articles. And there's been several books written on Harry, but nothing on, on this Alsop. That's one reason why I approached to write The Murder at Minnesota Point. And so I started digging into Harry's uh, storyline. Literally the night before they're going to hang him, his, uh, what would you call it? His attendant, a uh, man sitting outside the cell, you know, says essentially, Harry, you... 
you surely know who, who, who did in Lena Olson. And then Harry said, only two people know and one's dead already. So he seemed to at least have an idea of, of uh, what was involved with that case, but he never did divulge it. So when I put my book together, I would find little references like someone would say, oh, yes, we saw Alsop hanging outside on the street corner with Harry. Or there was a guy in Duluth that looked just like Harry. And so I couldn't be definitive and say, yes, they work together, but there is a possibility. Right. And Hayward, as he is awaiting execution, he confesses to other murders, right. which he offers no evidence for. But it's definitely out there, that the possibility that he might have been a serial killer. Right. And as he knew Alsop, they were running in the same circles, involved with the same shady characters. Yeah. And, you know, with Harry and, and to a lesser extent, this James Alsop, they, they were really into gambling and, uh, betting large sums of money and always trying to find the next buck. And it, it seemed to me that they thought people were dispensable. If there was money to be made off of someone, well, so what if we knock them off? We can get $500 from them. Then they move on to the next person. Unfortunately, back in those days, you know, the police work wasn't so great that you could pin someone with a DNA evidence. <laughs> you, you could get away with a lot more. And I think that's why it took so long to find uh, this Alsop individual because he'd move around. Um, you know, when he lived in the boarding house, and I mentioned earlier the, the satchel with all the paperwork, and he told the landlady his name was Albert Ellenson. But he warned her if any letters came for an Albert Austin to give them to him. So, you know, he was he had set up that name so he, he had aliases of Austin Ellison, Alsop, his real name. It took a while to kind of track all these individuals down as the same person. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's part of the sleuthing. I think uh, if you want to do re good research and tell a, uh, the narrative correctly, you ha you have to dig deep and you have to follow the threads. And I enjoy that. I uh, sometimes you come to dead ends, but um, for me, it was really enjoyable trying to put this book together because I think if you've been to some of my dinner parties, you probably got tired of me talking about it. And I think people are like, all right, just write it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who want to know more about you, your book, is there anywhere we can point them to? Yeah, so um, Murder at Minnesota Point is available at all major retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and so forth. Or you can just go down to your local bookseller. I recommend that. Support your independent bookstores. Check it out. Uh, I have a cousin who lives in New Zealand, and he went over to his bookstore and was able to get a copy. So they're around. <laughs> oh, yeah. very interesting. And if anything, the easiest way is, of course, directly from my publisher, North Star Editions out of St. Paul. So, right, you are an expert in Scandinavian history in Minnesota. Well, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I was the longtime archivist as well for the Norwegian American Archives at St. Olaf. And a fabulous resource center. It, um, it is the largest ethnic manuscript collection in the United States, uh, several thousand feet. And they have a state-of-the-art uh, archives uh, vault system, 
So if you ever if you're interested in your Norwegian background, definitely make an appointment to stop by St. Olaf and they can help you do some family research or try to help you uh, learn a little bit about um, your roots. Three of my grandparents are a hundred percent Norwegian. Yeah, no, they'd be great help to you. And um, they're a membership organization and they're housed at St. Olaf. But I served as an archivist for them for many years. And, uh, and I acquired, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I learned a lot about uh, Norwegian American history and, and how families like the Olsons, you know, came here to the States and, and why and, and their migration patterns. And it's a lot of Lena's growing up years, you know, it was a it was a struggle like many of our ancestors went through. And so I think readers will find that, you know, they can identify somehow with the Lena character because she's your great grandmother. You know, that's a lot of women, I would say twenty to forty percent of women were domestic servants as newly arrived immigrants. Yeah. There were a lot of, of Olsons in Minneapolis. Oh sure. Including my great grandfather who owned a butcher shop in the city around this time. Oh. And he was an Olsen. And, of course, it's very doubtful that there's a, a family connection. You never know. You know, what's fascinating is that, for me, it was kind of hard at first to, as I was trying to figure out who this Lena Olsen was because, believe it or not, there were 16 other Lena Olsons in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area working as domestic servants in 1894. 16 others. So I had to pinpoint which one am I dealing with. Yeah, I'll bet. In fact, the man who gave me $400 for her headstone, his last name was Olson. And this, if you have time, I will tell you this story because it's fascinating. He has a backyard forge. He was stoking up his furnace to do some metalwork, and he was crumpling up newspapers, and he was just ready to crumple up this one, and there was this book review of, of Murder at Minnesota Point with a big picture of Lena Olson. It was a big Star Tribune review. So instead of crumbling up, he sits down in his chair and starts reading it. And, you know, he's an Olson as well. And so now he, he believes somehow he's connected in a familiar sense. So that's why he was partly drawn and wanted to support this. He doesn't know if he, he said, maybe I'm her fourth cousin. But he wanted to be a part of this because he's an Olson. So, well, well, now you've got my brain going. Am I related to Lena Olson? <laughs> yeah. Could be. Maybe. <laughs> Could be. Well, probably are somewhere. Well, I, I, I so appreciate you coming on. Thanks again. Hey, thanks, Eric. You're very welcome. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Again, I have been speaking to Jeffrey Sove. He is the author of Murder at Minnesota Point. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time.